The craziest thing that ever happened to me on Route 66 was when a buddy and I were exploring on a ranch over in eastern New Mexico. We were looking for the remnants of the first road that went through there. And, well, let's just say the rancher wasn't too happy. We wound up calling him Doc Two Guns in retrospect because he had two guns on either side of his waist and then another two on his dashboard. And he asked us, do you boys know Jesus? You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. I'm Elena Cantrell Robinson, and I've taken over this episode of Buff Speak to bring you a special guest, the host of Buff Speak, Dr. Nick Gerlich. If you've ever had a chance to chat with Nick, you will quickly find out that in addition to being the Hickman Professor of Marketing at West Texas A&M University, he has a passion for that very famous stretch of U.S. Highway, Route 66. Nick, welcome to your podcast. You are considered a historian of Route 66. How did you become interested in Route 66? Well, I must preface this by saying it does feel weird to be on the other side of the table, but but it's fun, and, and this is a, a special edition of Buff Speak, and yeah, maybe in another year we'll do the 50th episode and do something different then also. But as for Route 66, I kind of grew up around it. Uh, I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. I I was probably about 25 miles from Route 66, and I was actually only about three miles from the Lincoln Highway. Uh, so I did a lot of exploring as a young kid. Uh, I rode my bike everywhere across the south suburbs. But more importantly about Route 66, it was a, a conduit for some of our family travels. And I have fond memories of traveling down Route 66 from Chicago toward St. Louis and ultimately on to Amarillo uh, on several family trips back in the 60s and 70s. I also got to hear many great stories from my father, who always uh, loved telling us the story of when he and two of his buddies, they were all bachelors, took off in the summer of 1955 in my dad's brand new 55 Chevy Bel Air, and they took Route 66 from Chicago to L.A. Somehow they managed to drive all 2,400 miles in three days. I, I have a strong feeling they just ignored whatever speed limits there were back then. But long story short, I loved hearing those stories that my father told, and it planted a seed inside of me. And, and it took until about a decade ago before that seed sprouted. I had already been living here in Amarillo since 1989, but I realized around 2010, 2011, that time frame, that, you know, I got this crazy mother road thing going right through Amarillo. It's not a whole lot different from when I was a kid and was growing up not far from Route 66 then either. I said, you know, I may as well just start exploring it. And, well, I fell in love with it. I, I drank the Kool-Aid. 
Many people have heard of Route 66, but most do not know very much about this famous road. Can you tell me where it started and ended? You kind of alluded to that, but uh, just give me a little bit more information about that. Well, it starts right in downtown Chicago. And, and although the actual start point did change at one time because they implemented one-way streets, the official historic beginning was uh, more or less Jackson at Michigan. There was a time where it actually extended a couple blocks further east to Lakeshore Drive, but we consider Jackson in Michigan uh, where it all really began. Uh, And then once they implemented the one-way streets in downtown Chicago, Adams, a block north, became the westbound. And so that became, you know, the, the new official starting point. Uh, and then originally it ended at the corner of 7th and Broadway in downtown Los Angeles, right there in the in the theater district. It's it's an amazing part of town. But then in the 1930s, they decided to just extend it a little bit further all the way over to Santa Monica, where it ended kind of unceremoniously at the corner of Olympic and Lincoln, where uh, U.S. 66 intersected Highway 101, and that was a rule back then. Uh, a, a federal highway could not just end somewhere. It had to end where it intersected another federal highway. Um, but uh, as, as all things turned out, uh, they decided that the Santa Monica Pier was actually a better place to have an unofficial official ending of Route 66. And so that's what most people consider today to be the end point. Tell me about Route 66 in Amarillo. Where did it go? Well, it it came into town from the east, and, and I'll, I'll keep my perspective strictly from east to west. Uh, that, that is the traditional way to travel Route 66 because everybody was motoring west, as it were, but obviously not everybody did. So it came into town from the east on Northeast 8th Avenue, um, a big chunk of it is actually now under a runway actually two runways at Amarillo International Airport, you can still see the uh, fragments of the original road on either side of the airport security fence. You just got to know where to look. There's actually a nice little section of slab that's inside the fence, and you, you kind of have to step on top of your vehicle to get a good picture of it so you can get over the fence, so to speak, and uh, you can see where the old road came. Um, and, and so it went right through there. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot out there at, at that time, but it came into town on uh, Northeast 8th, which we now know as Amarillo Boulevard. And it proceeded west to Fillmore, turned south, and then turned west on Southwest 6th Avenue. So it went straight to downtown Amarillo, just like it always went to the downtowns of practically every city and town between Chicago and L.A. We, they loved to bring tourists through the downtown section because they thought they might spend money. What was traveling like before Route 66 and the other highways that were built? Well, you know, 66 really wasn't built per se. A lot of people like to think, oh, they uh, decided in 1926 to do this, and uh, they set out a bunch of construction crews. No, what they did was stitch together a bunch of previously existing roads in different parts of the country. For example, in 
Illinois, there was the Pontiac Trail, which uh, carried a lot of the, the traffic. Uh, and believe me, a lot of this was still dirt roads back in, at that time. Uh, that took traffic to St. Louis, where they then got on what was called the Wire Road uh, across the majority of Missouri. Uh, basically, it was it was an old road that had a bunch of telephone poles along it and telegraph lines, and so that, that was why it was the wire road. Uh, through Oklahoma and uh, the Texas Panhandle and eastern New Mexico, it took advantage of the network of highways back then known as the Ozark Trail. And, and that was actually an interesting story in and of itself. A, uh, a resort owner from northwest Arkansas uh, decided that, you know, if he made a bunch of roads that all kind of ultimately pointed to his resort, he might be able to generate some traffic and make some money. And so we had prongs of this Ozark Trail all over the Southwest running from Missouri into eastern New Mexico. And uh, we were able to use a lot of that. Uh, beyond eastern New Mexico, Route 66 ultimately joined up with the National Old Trails Road which was basically the national highway that started uh, at the East Coast and went across the whole country. Um, once Route 66 joined in with the National Old Trails Road, it followed it pretty religiously all the way to downtown Los Angeles. What were the politics of road building a century ago? Oh, they were pretty intense. And, you know, we like to think we live in politically divisive times now. Uh, this is nothing new. It's, uh, you know, same song, different verse, basically, today. Everybody in, in all these towns wanted Route 66 to come through their town and through the center of town so you, they could drag traffic, literally, past all the businesses, the hotels, and so forth. And you got to remember, back before we had uh, motorized traffic, the train was really the only way to get around uh, in, in these parts of the country. And so the hotels, uh, by virtue of this, were usually built near the railroad tracks because uh, any guests that came along were on foot. They didn't have Hertz or Enterprise to rent a car from, so they had to walk to the hotel. And so the roads typically followed the railroad most of the way. Um, the champion of Route 66 was a Tulsa businessman by name of Cyrus Avery, and being the good businessman he was, he wanted Route 66 to come through Tulsa, first and foremost. And, but he saw the benefit of a nearly transcontinental route from Chicago to L.A. It's not a true transcon because it doesn't go all the way to New York or the Atlantic Ocean. But he thought that there would be uh, a, a need fulfilled by getting this national recognition for a route that covered about 2,400 miles, and as long as it went through Tulsa, of course. When was Route 66 officially recognized as a highway? Well, that would go back to November 11th, 1926. That was the day that all federally numbered highways were born. And so while 66 gets, you know, the vast majority of the limelight in this, we got to remember that US 87 and all the other US highways all have the same birth date. But it's 66 that, you know, we we talk about the most here. Um and and again it was it was truly just stitching together a bunch of previously existing roads, the vast majority of which were still dirt 
1926. Why and how was 66 chosen as the number of this road? Well, that's another great story there because Cyrus Avery actually wanted 60. Now, to answer that, you know, you have to exp- you have to understand that there is a rhyme and reason to uh, the numbering system for highways. For the federal highways, the uh, roads that ended in a zero all ran more or less east-west, and those that ended in odd numbers, actually all even numbers were east-west, but the zeros were the most important ones, and then the odd numbers went north-south, but the fives were the, the principles of those as well. There's a, It's very analogous to how the interstate highways are numbered today, but they flipped it just a little bit. Um, the, the federal highways created in 26 go from highest to lowest as you go from south to north, and uh, highest to lowest on the odd numbers from west to east. It's the exact opposite on the interstate highways, as it turns out. But Mr. Avery wanted 60. Unfortunately, the governor of Kentucky also wanted 60, and he put forth a really good argument for why 60 not only should be a truly transcontinental highway, ocean to ocean, but also should go through uh, his great state. And his argument prevailed. Well, Mr. Avery was kind of, uh, you know, he was pretty much hurting at that point and was feeling the defeat. And he was like, well, what do we do now? And uh, the number 62 hadn't been taken, but he just felt like it didn't resonate that well. And, and he looked around a little bit more at the, the registry of numbers that had already started to be filled up around the country, and he realized that number 66 was still available. And he loved the alliterative quality of that sound, the, the, the repetitive S sounds. And he went for it, and, and he got it. And in retrospect, it was the best thing that ever could have happened. Now, in terms of Amarillo, as it turns out, We've got the intersection of Highway 60 and 66 right here in Amarillo. They actually run together for a little bit. So we wound up with the best of both. You mentioned that uh, Route 66 was stitched together. Um, Did it stick to the same route once it was stitched together, or did it change? Actually, the ink never dried on those early maps back then because— this was very early uh, in road building, and so the civil engineers were learning new techniques, literally, uh, as they went along. Just like uh, early website builders in the 90s were learning new tricks from week to week to week. And so massive improvements were made available uh, almost overnight, it seemed like. And so whereas uh, the earliest roads tended to go around things following the contour of the land, uh, once once we had dynamite and, you know, TNT and things like that, we could blow up things in the way and go over them or through them. And so that's what wound up happening over time. And so when I say the ink never dried, it seemed like they were always making a better way, a better road. And and here's another thing that uh, is, is a big surprise, the idea of a bypass. Um, Route 66 quickly became a very busy thoroughfare, and 
it became a bottleneck in some towns. So even though originally uh, cities wanted the traffic, they wound up realizing this is maybe detrimental here. And so bypasses started being built as early as the 1930s around some towns. And that, that continued on through the 40s and the 50s until we get to the interstate era. And so that's why it's possible in some areas where you can still access uh, different uh, paths or alignments, as we call them, of Route 66, you can find three different historical versions of the road all in the same town. And they're all, you know, each one is just a little bit further out. You mentioned uh, commerce and transportation, but what role did 66 play in commerce and transportation through the years? Well, um, early on, it was... uh, especially after the the Great Depression hit in 1929, it became a road of hope for people looking in desperation for anything, some work, some food. And as the Dust Bowl years ensued, Route 66 became, uh, well, it, it wound up weaving itself into history and pop culture as the road that the Okies took as they went west to California looking for work. It wasn't the only road that people took to get to California. There were others, too. The Lincoln Highway carried a lot. US 80, US 90 did. But 66 is the one that everyone remembers with the Okies heading west. Um, but once we got through the Dust Bowl years, um, we, we found ourselves in a world war. And so it wound up carrying a lot of defense traffic um, as well as commercial traffic. And then after the war was over, we went into a period of unprecedented prosperity. And that found uh, servicemen and women coming back from the war, getting married, starting families, buying houses, buying cars. And then the next thing was, let's take a road trip. And so Route 66 became uh, a road of recreation that people took to get to someplace else to have a good time. I know it took many years for the interstates uh, to, as we know them today, to be completed. What was it like when the interstate highway was being constructed, but there was also Route 66 and the other highways? That was a rather long transitional period. It started in 1955, basically, when President Dwight D. Eisenhower was instrumental in getting a, a major Federal Highway Act bill passed that created the interstate highway system, and allowed for massive amounts of financial funding of these new roads. And so um, new highways that were, by design, four-lane divided, controlled access, meaning no uh, crossings at grade or anything like that. You had to have exit ramps, on-ramps, overpasses, all these things started being built around the country. Uh, The thing is, though, they were not really built incrementally like one mile and then another mile and another mile. They were built in chunks. And so the result for travelers then was they'd get on the freeway for a few miles. Then they'd have to get off the freeway and get on the old road. And then a little later, they'd get back on the new freeway. And this went back and forth, back and forth all the way across the country. It was it was actually kind of annoying. I remember it. Um, I wasn't driving. I was a backseat passenger, but I remember it all too well, um, seeing you know the exit that made, made us all get off and take this little old road again. Uh, it took about 30 years, though, for us to get the interstate highway system 
to more or less where it is today. Now, I can, I can say, though, that the interstate highway system is still being built out. There are still some new segments being built. Not much, um, but uh, they're still doing it simply because there's a lot more traffic out there than Dwight D. Eisenhower ever could have imagined. And those roughly 46,000 miles that they sketched out then uh, are proving to be eh, a little bit less than adequate today. When was Route 66 decommissioned? Well, that happened in 1985. It was uh, basically a, a removal from the federal inventory of highways. As much as we like to think Route 66 still exists, yeah, the road is still there and about 85% of it is still drivable. Um, there are no federal Route 66 signs out there to identify the road. Those old sections of road were left to the states and cities to do what they wanted to with. For example, in Oklahoma, uh, between Edmond and, well, almost all the way to Joplin, Missouri, you will drive on what is now Oklahoma 66. The same thing happens out in California across the Mojave. It's California 66. It was once the federal highway, but uh, the federal government basically gave it back. Uh, it was kind of an unceremonious ending um, and one that really didn't get many headlines or anything at the time, but it was something that everybody knew was going to happen sooner or later. What was the last place in Texas to be bypassed by the interstate? Well, Texas has the distinction of the second to last town on 66 being bypassed by the freeway, and that's McLean, Texas, just east of Amarillo. That was in 1984. Uh, I think I want to say it was in the summer, and basically it was uh, it was a battle that uh, the McLean residents fought. They knew what was going to happen. Once uh, a bypass was built around town, basically they knew that their town was going to dry up and all the cars were going to go flying by it at highway speeds, never have a reason to stop, never have a reason to spend money. And I don't know what they thought would be a feasible alternative other than just continuing to live in the past. Um, but basically, it was true. Um, soon as the freeway opened, that would be I-40. Soon as it opened, bypassing people around town, it was like flipping the light switch. Uh, and I should add here, the last town in America that was uh, on 66 to be bypassed by the freeway was Williams, Arizona. That also happened a little bit later in 1984. And uh, that one happened with a little bit more fanfare. There were uh, dignitaries out there and fans and, of course, lots of journalists and photographers to uh, see people cutting ribbons on the new freeway. And once again, it was like flipping a switch. After the break, we'll take a look at how Route 66 has influenced pop culture. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu cob or 
call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. The song Get Your Kicks on Route 66 is very familiar. Who wrote it and how it hasn't it been covered by a lot of artists over the years? Oh yeah, that's Bobby Troop's familiar song. He and his wife were on a road trip across the country. I believe they started in Pittsburgh and by the time they got to about St. Louis, they hopped on Route 66 and you know, they're just killing time, driving the miles, all that kind of stuff, taking in the scenery and his wife suggested to him, you know, kind of an idea for a song about this great road. And, well, one thing led to another, and the words just kind of rolled off his tongue. And so he wrote the lyrics to the song that, well, every Route 66 fan knows today by heart. And he wrote it for, initially, Nat King Cole, who was the first artist to record it. Well, it was an, an instant hit, and, and now today... It's been covered by more than 200 artists who have interpreted the song into many, many different genres. The Manhattan Transfer did a great jazzy version of it. Asleep at the Wheel turned it into a Texas two-step, and that is a fun, fun song. The Rolling Stones covered it. Chuck Berry covered it. And, And one of the best rock renditions has to be Depeche Mode. But it's a song that is out there and is part of the American fabric today. Bobby Troop had no idea then what he was writing. I've heard Route 66 referred to as the Mother Road. How did it get that name? Well, you can thank John Steinbeck for that in The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, he, He novelized the whole Dust Bowl slash Route 66 uh, experience uh, headed toward California and and wrote about the fictional Jode family and and all the plight they had uh, going uh, well about 1500 miles basically uh, across Oklahoma, Texas, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and on into California. Those were very, very trying times. And basically Steinbeck said, you know that this was a you know truly a mother of a road. and uh, it was a ribbon of hope for those who had none. How did John Steinbeck get influenced by Route 66 to write that great American novel? And how did both the book and then there was a movie adaptation influence pop culture? Well, Steinbeck was uh, very, very aware, thanks to the news and so forth, of this vast human migration that was happening. Um, It was hard to not know about it because of so many people suddenly taking to the roads to, to find a new way of life, even if it meant just picking cabbage or, you know, some rather undignified job because people needed anything. And this hit him pretty hard. He he felt like, you know, there was a, a bigger story to be told here, one that could make uh, everybody's uh, challenges and difficulties just a little bit more relatable. Um, the book came out in 39. The silver screen adaptation came out in 1940. These went on to uh, literally put uh, Steinbeck's fingerprints on a generation. Uh, people, it resonated with them, people who either had to live that Dust Bowl reality or those who were lucky enough not to 
but by virtue of reading or seeing the depiction of it, they walked away with a far greater uh, appreciation of just how difficult the times were. I've heard that there was even a television series called Route 66 back in the early 60s. Tell us about that one. Well, this is an, uh, a great story that um, the name has a lot to do with Route 66, but the actual series has very little. <laughs> uh, there were about 100 episodes over the span of about three years. The story of two guys traveling around the country doing odd things uh, and having strange encounters with people and different elements along the way. This is an interesting show because it was actually filmed on location every week in a different city and usually a different state, sometimes hundreds of miles apart. And and only, I think, three different episodes had any filming at all done on Route 66. Uh, so they were using the name Route 66 almost as a metaphor of adventure. But the truth is, they were all over the country. And, and I've read some articles on the show and how difficult it was for cast and crew literally to land in one place and shoot all the scenes and then have to pack up and drive hundreds of miles to get ready to go film the next episode. And this is just a, a totally alien concept because back then, uh, serial television often had 35 episodes or more in a season. And today, on, an, on Netflix, eight or 10, maybe, and that's it. That's a whole season. Imagine having to do a whole year's worth of that on a week-to-week -week basis. I mean, this has got to be worse than being in the carnival. <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine the workload. I would be exhausted trying to do all that, memorizing lines, doing all that travel. Um, yeah, it's, it's much easier today to do this. They really had to work hard for their money back then. More than 200 books have been written about Route 66. It's become entrenched in pop culture. Why do you think this happened? I think people uh, just became fascinated with the Mother Road once they realized they didn't have it anymore. Um, the only book about Route 66 that I know of that came out while Route 66 actually existed was Jack Rittenhouse's book in 1946, which was really just a travel guide uh, giving traveler tips from Chicago to L.A. It was after the decommissioning of the road that uh, authors and photographers realized, you know, this was actually pretty good. Maybe we better go out and document this. Uh, we should talk to the people. We should photograph the things, the buildings, the signs along Route 66 and uh, keep it, you know, kind of as a historic document um, before it all goes away. And yet, while people started writing books in the late 80s, people are still writing books about Route 66 35 years later. And that is, uh, that's pretty crazy because the landscape has changed considerably in those years. Um, it's safe to say that uh, a huge portion of what was once there is no longer there, but there's still a lot of cool things that you can find. There are still plenty of old neon signs, old theaters, old buildings, old motels, things like that, that um, attract 
Mother Road Travelers today like uh, Moths to a Flame. Well, tell us about the two books that you have co-authored about Route 66. Well, the first one was with Ellen Klinkel uh, from Germany, and uh, it's called A Matter of Time, Route 66 Through the Lens of Change. Uh, There's a great backstory to this. Um, I did not know Ellen nor her husband, Udo, until um, about 2015 or thereabouts, uh, except via Facebook. Uh, We were just part of a a Facebook group on Route 66, and out of the blue, I get an email from Ellen and Udo uh, saying, hey, we're coming through Amarillo on, on our upcoming Route 66 trip. Would you like to get together? And I said, well, yeah, sure. I like meeting people, especially interesting people uh, with whom I've interacted on social media. So we met in downtown Amarillo at uh, the original location of Crush and had dinner and some wine and beer. And, and then they dropped the question, would you like to write a book together? And I thought for about two seconds, okay, <laughs> sounds good to me. Um Ellen is, uh, she is a prodigy photographer. She didn't do this as a child. Actually, it was her husband, Udo, who put the camera in her hands uh, uh, at about age 30 or a little bit beyond and uh, taught her how to use it. And she's just a natural. She is absolutely amazing. My job was to do the words. And so we worked hard on this. And, you know, being our first book, um, it took a lot of time. Um, I was nowhere near as uh, wordy, if you will, I guess, or able to write a lot of words in one day as I, as I am now. And she took her great time to edit and uh, tweak all the photos that she wanted in the book. Uh, it took about a couple of years to get a, a complete manuscript together. We had a little more than 100 locations along Route 66 that she had photographed. I wrote an essay about each one of those locations, came out to about 46,000 words, and then we went shopping with it. Um, We shopped it to one publisher in New Mexico, never heard a word. And then we shopped it to Oklahoma University Press, and they were interested. Uh, Well, One thing led to another, and we worked back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and we gave them a finished manuscript. They uh, sent it off to uh, their reviewers and editors, and of course, they had to go at it and do this and take out that and ask for some more of this and and on and on. And well, it came out in October of 2019, and it's a fantastic looking book, if I do say so myself. Ellen's photographs are amazing. Oh, and it's all in black and white because Ellen is a fine art photographer. And it's it's a stunning photography. Um, I like to think my words might be just as stunning, but I, I know probably not. Um, you can you can devour the book and just look at the pictures. Uh, but if you if you want to spend a little more time with it, then you can read the words. But the, the, the pictures carry the book. Uh, the words just help explain it in um, a little bit more detail. Uh, the second book that we did, though, and this actually involved Udo, so we had all three of us working on it. This was uh, America's—it's uh, well, Route 66, America's Legendary Highway, but in German. And so that was interesting for me. And no, I did not write in German. I'm 
uh, busy trying to teach myself some German and understand it and so forth. And it's, while it's a fun language to, to study, to listen to and all that, I am not fluent in the least. And so I wrote the vast majority of the, of the text, but I wrote it in English and then Udo translated it into German because he is, uh, he is bilingual, perfectly bilingual. But the trick in this book was writing it for a German market, not an American market. And they're very different. You, you cannot assume that anybody driving down Route 66 or even with just a, a passing interest in the Mother Road would all want to read the same thing. No, not at all, because Americans uh, today who are interested in Route 66 see it through the lens of nostalgia. And uh, international travelers see Route 66 more as a broader pop cultural phenomenon. Uh, they are interested in our history. And oh, by the way, anything that's 100 years old here is still brand new over there. They, they kind of laugh when we say something is old. Nah, we don't even know what old is. <laughs> um, but I had to write it with a very different look at things, explaining things uh, for... Uh, an international audience that wouldn't understand the nostalgia, you know, like the uh, taking the the fifty five Chevy Bel Air to a, a a drive in and and getting hamburgers and milkshakes and things like that. That's an alien concept, and they may they may like to experience that while they're over here, but they don't pine for it like a lot of people do here. What about all those magazine articles that you've written? Well, that's uh, that's an that's a guilty pleasure, actually. I love doing this. I'm I've been writing for Root Magazine since spring of 2018, so that's five years now, six issues a year. Um, in most issues, I have one long form feature that's usually about 2,400 words, and uh, sometimes one or two uh, shorter pieces um, that you either don't have a byline or use uh, uh, a pseudonym because we don't want to clutter up the magazine with just one name. Um, so, But anyway, I've easily got three dozen, maybe closer to four dozen articles that I've written about the people and the places along Route 66. And, and basically, every one of those articles is storytelling. I, I find the people who can tell their story, and then I embellish it with facts and figures and all that kind of stuff. And uh, mix it into a new story about a person or a place along the Mother Road. And you might think with 200 books already written, surely there isn't anything else left to tell. Oh, man, we're not even done yet. We haven't even really scraped the surface. There's so many more stories that are untold just waiting to find their time in print. Well, what are some things that most people don't know about Route 66? Well, uh, a, a lot of people don't realize that Route 66 went through eight states. Um, I've seen so many mistakes on the Internet. Uh, people have a map of Route 66, and they forget Kansas. Okay, it only went 13 miles through Kansas, but, hey, it did go through Kansas. And, and we can't overlook that. And each of the eight states... That it went through Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California. Each one of them is very different and unique 
in its own way. Uh, it's got its own little subculture. Um, it's got its own flora and fauna. It's a very different look as you keep going west. Um, a lot of people also don't realize that um, along Route 66 were some of the best examples of early roadside attractions. It's not that Route 66 had a monopoly on them, but um, because there were so many people traveling the road, it was just a it was a um, an, an easy business decision to put up trading posts, for example, that sold um, Native American curios like rugs and moccasins and jewelries, or or here's a great little bit of marketing here: have a snake pit where you can uh, basically address your fears safely. You can look down into this pit where there's not a chance at all of you being bitten by the rattlesnake, but you can see it only three or four feet away. Because believe me, people coming from the Midwest and points east, a lot of those people had never, ever seen a rattlesnake. And of course, there are a dime a dozen out here. And, uh, you know, it's no shortage. We can catch them all day long if you know where to look. And so uh, shrewd entrepreneurs uh, would use, they would pull out all the, pull all the punches basically and put up enough of these things that caused people to want to stop, to see the snakes or um, to peruse products that were really just tropes of Native American life, you know, the moccasins and all that stuff. They didn't have to be real. Um, even, even Fred Harvey, when he, uh, when his company was building hotels and uh, restaurants along the railroad uh, before, you know, before we had roads in, in Albuquerque, he would hire Native Americans to work outside the train station. And basically, whenever a train came through and there was a little bit of a, a break there and people got out to go to the bathroom, get a bite to eat or whatever, he basically paid these Native Americans to just look and act Indian because the, the people on the train had no idea, but they had questions. And so Fred Harvey had answers. And so did all these roadside entrepreneurs selling all the, the trinkets and so forth and showing you the snakes and, and all that. It became basically part and parcel of the American roadside. The movie Cars came out in 2006 and spawned two sequels. Tell us about the storyline, as well as how the Pixar people did their research to get it right. When the movie Cars came out, uh, nobody realized then that it was going to be the, the best movie of the century thus far. And of course, I may be the most biased person in the room to ask that as he turns around to see if there's anybody else in the room. Um, but it, it just is that good. It was well written. It's a, it's a story that can be understood on two levels. Children understood it. At its most simple level, it was a great animated story. It's got, you know, boy, girl, boy meets girl, you know, all that stuff and, and basic conflict in a town and so forth. But older people could see the deeper story behind it. The Pixar people, though, didn't really know much about Route 66 other than the fact that John Lasseter, then the head of Pixar, had taken a family road trip along the highway and decided, you know, this is pretty cool. Maybe we should look at this. 
They hired Michael Wallace to be their tour guide over the span of a couple summers, and he took them up and down Route 66, seeing the places, meeting the people of the Mother Road. Now, why did they hire him? Well, because Michael Wallace wrote Route 66, The Mother Road, which was one of the very first books that came out about Route 66, and as it turns out, the best-selling one. Over a million copies have been sold. So if you want a knowledgeable person about Route 66, you uh, you go for the best-selling author. And he knew everybody. He knew every inch of the road. They could not have hired a better person to be their tour guide. And so by virtue of that, they were inspired about many of the things they saw along the Mother Road, abandoned buildings even, and people, people in real life who inspired characters in the movie. And so the casual viewer made us think, oh, this is cool. You know, you've got Sally out there and you've got the sheriff and all these other characters. Those people in the movie are based on real Route 66 people. Oh, and by the way, the sheriff in the movie is Michael Wallace. His uh, distinct baritone voice uh, is unmistakable. When we come back, we'll take a look at why people are still fascinated by Route 66. Paying taxes is never fun, and for this reason, there's always a demand for more CPAs. Our MPA degree or Master's in Public Accounting prepare students to take the CPA exam and helps their clients navigate those tricky waters. Or you could use this as a stepping stone towards a PhD in a career in academia. Either way, our MPA will ensure that you are up to date on all of the generally accepted accounting principles and ready to toil in the world of taxation, debits, and credits. We're AA CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with the WT MPA in hand. Waivers are available for the GMAT. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or give us a call at 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach for those stars. Why do you think people are still fascinated by Route 66? Well, that's a, that's a tough question, and I could probably write another book just about that in and of itself. In America, you've got uh, basically an, an aging population who has uh, memories of driving the mother road or backseat passengering, in, in my case. We've got memories, and, and for many people, it is thus a shared experience. We remember the old road, and so we look at Route 66 as a nostalgic phenomenon. And for those of us who are of a certain age, we are basically uh, yearning for something the Welsh call hiraith. Uh, it's, it's an interesting word. Basically, it's a, it's a desire to go back to a place in which we once lived. It's like desiring to go back to your childhood hometown to see your, your house for example. And, and I've done these things, these pilgrimages, if you will, uh, back to Chicago to see my, my parents' first house and then the second house. And oh, the memories those things stir. And so if you are, have, if you have feelings of hiraith, it's going to guide you through Route 66 with 
that lens firmly in place. It may not be the crystal clear lens you would put on a camera. It may be rose tinted or whatever, but you're going to Route 66 to relive something. Now, on the other hand, if if you're an American especially, but younger and want to do 66, you may be experiencing feelings of anamoya, a totally different concept, which is a desire to go back in time to a place in which you never lived. For example, I have often said, I would love to be a fly on the wall in Southern California in the 1950s. I wasn't born yet. Okay, that's Anamoya. I would love to go back in time if if that were possible. I want to see... I want to see Lucy and Ricky, <laughs> you know? I want to see what life was like for them in in New York City and then all those great episodes that were centered on their uh, their trip out to Hollywood. Um, man, that would be great. Time travel would be fun. We all know it's not possible. It's just a flight of fantasy, but that's what Anamoya is all about. And so among Americans in particular, you've got those seeking here wraith, and then others, younger folks, with feelings of anamoya. For international travelers, it's uh, it's a little bit different yet, because simply because there are no shared experiences, uh, period. They were not here for any of Route 66, but they've heard all about it, and they want to experience it, uh, whether they're young, old. In fact, I've, most of the international travelers I've met are actually quite a bit younger than the American Route 66 traveler. Do you think the Cars movie franchise helped create a new generation of Route 66 travelers? I like to think it does. And, and that would be people in their 20s and maybe early 30s right now. A lot of Gen Z and then the youngest millennials. And I actually see some evidence of that. Um, not a whole lot yet, but but I see it happening. I, I have to remind myself that, you know, I'm not 25 or 30 anymore. And when I was that age, um, I had different interests. Um, I wanted, you know, I wanted to do different things. I saw, I saw the road basically as just a way to get to a destination. And to do Route 66 is to treat the journey as the destination. But I'm beginning to see some younger folks seeing it just that way. You said that 85% of uh, Route 66 still exist. Can you still drive Route 66? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there is uh, at least one app. I Actually, I can think of several, but there's one that's really popular that helps guide you uh, turn by turn. I know a lot of international uh, travelers use that app in particular. Uh, it, and you can download it to your phone so that you don't need uh, cellular service, which is a very expensive proposition for our, our international travelers. Um, they're usually uh, sucking up Wi-Fi as soon as they get to their hotel that night uh, and then just uh, dealing with whatever they can do on their phones during the day. And if they've got the app downloaded, they can navigate or they can buy uh, the, the Easy Guide 66 uh, that's written by an Oklahoma author. And it's, a, it's basically a, a printed version with a nice spiral binding so that you can flip the pages and not have to worry about the book closing back up on you. And you can get turn by turns there as well. Between the two of those, 
you can get from Chicago to L.A. without a problem. Some of the states have erected signs. Others have put uh, uh, pavement markings, uh, painted the, the highway shields on the road. Um, you, can, you can make it pretty easily. Um, but then the other 15 percent uh, is either uh, it doesn't exist anymore simply because maybe they built a freeway right on top of it or uh, maybe it goes through some rancher's land and and maybe, you know, the government did a trade. Basically, we'll take this and we'll, we'll give you this back and you can you can have at it and do what you want with it. And uh, though that 15 percent is a little bit harder to visit. And, and there are some of us who have. Uh, probably climbed a few more gates and crawled under more barbed wire than we should have. But that's all part of the adventure. If someone could not drive the whole of Route 66, what part of Route 66 would you suggest people drive? Well, I um, am partial to that long section in western Arizona that you can you can access off of Interstate 40 between Ash Fork and Seligman, and and then it runs continuously for more than a hundred miles. Uh, it goes through Seligman and then takes you north into uh, the Wallapai Reservation, where you go through Peach Springs, and then arcs back south, uh, ultimately taking you to Kingman. You'll cross under I-40, uh, go through. Uh, more or less downtown Kingman, and then uh, exit the south end of town. Uh, you, you may have to get on the freeway just a couple of miles, but then you can get right back off and take the old road over the Black Mountains, where it takes you to Cool Springs, where there's a great trading post. And then as soon as you cross the summit and drop down to Oatman, you can see a really cool old mining town today that has burrows walking the streets. It's got food, uh, souvenirs, bars, all that kind of stuff. It's a great stop. And, and everybody likes to stop and feed the burrows. Sounds like that might be your favorite stretch of road. <laughs> It is. I I love doing it. Um, The only thing I haven't done on that section yet is riding my bike over it. Um, um, And uh, one of these days I will. There's a tough mountain pass in there, but hey, it's all doable. If if cars built 95 to 100 years ago could make it, I'm pretty sure I can too. Are there any efforts being made to prepare for the centennial of Route 66 in 2026? Oh, yeah, man. Lots of people are talking about this. Uh, And boy, it's, it's... coming fast. I mean, here we are now, uh, July of 2023, you know, three years from now, there, there's going to be a whole lot of festivals happening. Uh, earlier this summer, uh, the first 10 days of June, we had the first uh, Texas Route 66 Festival headquartered right here in Amarillo. It was a 10-day festival that uh, the Amarillo Convention and Visitor Bureau and other partners assembled to introduce American as well as international travelers to everything there is to know about Route 66 out here in Texas, border to border, the whole 178 miles from the 100th meridian to the 103rd meridian. And this, along with previously existing festivals like uh, Springfield, Missouri, Springfield, Illinois, and others across the country, you're just going to see more and more and more of this because we're basically getting ready for a big party. Well, sounds good. I hope I'm invited. (laughs) (laughs) 
So do you think there will be much left of Route 66 in 25 or 50 years from now? That's a tough question um, because as much as I would like to see Route 66 exist in perpetuity, I know that things change. It just happens. Progress is inevitable. Um, Anything that we see in 25 or 50 years is going to be the result of preservation-minded individuals, organizations, companies, and cities. And it will take them working together to preserve old motels, old buildings, old neon signs, all these things that are really worth preserving, things that are um, part of uh, the roadside appearance, uh, you know, the landscape, the lay of the land. If we let these things get away, well, you know, we have only ourselves to blame. Uh, but still, some buildings fall down. They they have a shelf life, basically. And I have read too many stories of uh, mom and pop motels from the 50s, which would put them at about 70 years of age and maybe some a few years more than that, uh, either getting condemned or falling down or whatever. They, they, just, they just reach the end of their, their life, just like all of us humans will ultimately reach the end of ours. And it takes a lot of foresight to protect these things, to maintain them all along so that they can last well into the future. My hope is that uh, all these different entities along the road will find a way to work together, um, put aside any differences they might have, and save as much as they can. I know you can't save everything. I mean, come on. There, there were so many thousands of neon signs lining American streets in the 1940s. There's no way we could ever save them all. I know a lot have already gone to the scrapper through the years, and uh, a significant number have gone to private collections as well. But we still can't save everything. We can't save every building. And, and we have to balance uh, the desire to save history with the desire to be relevant in whatever year we're talking about to to make money. Because if a building is not revenue producing, meaning it's just standing there, yeah, it may hold a lot of sentimental value for people, but um, cities depend on sales tax revenues. And if a, if a valuable piece of commercial property is occupied by an abandoned, derelict building, it's not doing any good, unfortunately. If the building can't be saved, it may have to be demolished. And I, I hate to say this, but you may wind up with a Walgreens on that corner. And I know that's you know ugly compared to a historic building, but, well, I know the city will be happy. The tax assessor will be even happier because that land and the building on it are going to be uh, worth a lot more money in the books, and they're going to they're going to be revenue producing. So we got to find a way to balance all of those interests. Do you have any suggestions on books or documentaries about Route sixty six? Oh my, there's so many books and videos and so forth out there about Route sixty six. I suggest this just getting on YouTube and uh, you know cast your line out there, see what you can catch. One of my favorites, though, is uh, a 1984 news report out of a Houston television station that featured Route 66 across the Texas panhandle. And 1984 may not seem like that far back, but hey, that's 39 years already. If you look at that video, you will see that, ooh, 
Lots of things have actually changed out there, but some things haven't. Uh, some of the people in it, some of the older people that the, uh, the reporter interviewed, my hunch is they're deceased by now. Uh, so that is one of my favorite videos to look at. Watch the Cars movie and watch it with a critical eye. Use your ears. Listen. Listen for the great one-liners in there. Uh, Sally talking about uh, how the old road always hugged the land and, you know, went around the hills and so forth. And, you know, the new road went up and over or through it. That it's it's so obvious that movie is about Route 66, but unless you know a little bit about Route 66, a lot of that's just going to go flying right by you. I also strongly recommend picking up Michael Wallace's book. It is just as relevant today as it was uh, around 1990 when it came out. Oh, and don't forget your book. Well, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, although it's out of print, so um, I have some copies, though. I've got about a dozen or so at the house that I found. And I actually found it on Amazon. Well, good for you. All right. <laughs> Our guest today has been Dr. Nick Gerlich. Nick, give us your best shot. Find some time, set it aside, pack your bags, and go get your kicks on Route 66. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is Dean of the College. You can find us online at wtamu.edu cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas a and University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff speak.